Welcome to the second episode of Blindness No Barrier, a memoir of David Blythe. I am John Coleman, and this is the second of a series of interviews focusing on different aspects of the remarkable life of David Blythe. It will cover the key aspects of David's life that made him the person that he is, with a particular focus on the pivotal role David played in the development of human rights for people with disabilities, both in Australia and worldwide. The episodes are produced by myself and edited by Robert Love. The music is by the very talented Jeff Irvin, and I appreciate the support of Blind Citizens Australia in the promotion of this memoir. We begin this episode with an interview of Mary Ann Diamond, asking her to share her own insights into David and to reflect on some of his major achievements. Firstly, welcome Marianne, and thank you for being a part of David's memoir. Thanks. It's great to be part of a special person like David's memoirs. To help create a sense of context, could you please tell us how you know David and in what ways you've worked with him? I met David when I was quite a young child. He, um, his family was, was very close to a school friend of mine's family and I was introduced to David. So to me, he seemed like an old man who was busy working and looking after a family and raising it. So I kind of just met him and that was all. Many years later, I um, knew David, probably not personally, but through his first presidency of Blind Citizens Australia. I was a university student, a bit on the outs outside a little bit busy having a life not getting involved in blindness issues as many teenagers do and so I knew of David more than knew him Um, years later um, I came to know David and worked more closely with David as we planned the World Blind Union General Assembly to be held in Melbourne in 2000 and I was what I used to describe as the token woman on the organizing committee because the World Blind Union was going to hold an international blind women's forum. So this committee of organisers in Melbourne decided they should have a woman on the committee and somehow it was me. So I started then to work quite closely with David and then, you know, as things transpired, I got to know David very well as a friend, a mentor, a colleague. He introduced me to the World Blind Union or as he might describe, he introduced the world to me. Um, and, and, you know, set in place for me with his support and encouragement and assistance, you know, a career of my own at the international level. So, as I say, I see David as a friend, a colleague, a mentor. As you know, Marianne, this podcast is focusing on David's role in establishing and promoting human rights for people with disabilities, both in Australia and worldwide. How do you see David's role in this and how significant do you think it has been? I think David has all of his life lived the values of of human rights and, you know, the the empowerment of people, you know, in their own lives, determination of persons with disabilities in determining their own future. So David has lived those values his life. He, as I said, mentioned, as I mentioned, he was very instrumental and the first president of Blind Citizens Australia, recognising the value importance of a necessity of an organisation of blind people in Australia um, to change the way services are delivered and we are as blind people um, recognised, seen and treated in this country. He also um, did through the World Blind Union as president from 1992 to 1996. And a couple of things, he was instrumental, of course, in the U- as president of World Blind Union in the UN um development of the standard rules on equal opportunities for persons with disabilities, which was a preceding kind of piece of legislation or law that preceded the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. He was instrumental in um, achieving the, the participation of blind women, both in the World Blind Union as delegates and in also their leadership roles. Because when David first came in as president, I don't know if I've got the data right, but there was something like only 
13% of delegates to the General Assembly of the World Blind Union is women. And when he left, it was um, probably over 30%. So David was, you know, a great instrument in changing that. And he also talked a lot to the grassroots people around the world and, and made them feel welcome, important and part of this global movement that would, you know, change the way we as blind people globally um, live our lives and are treated and, and our input into the, um, the development of policy for, for all persons with disabilities. If I can get you to choose just one thing that you've found most impressive about David, what would that be? I think I would say, irrespective of who David meets, um, whether it be the prime minister of a country, the president of a country, the poorest person of the country, he can equally engage with them, make them feel comfortable and also, you know, get talk about what is important to them and, 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 and achieve something from a conversation. Not many people can actually do that and do that naturally. And to me, um, that was... That's been one of my most, you know, inspiring things that David's been able to do and I've seen it in action and I've heard it from many people um, as I've travelled around the world. In your opportunities to get to know David and work with him over the years, what would you say is the most surprising thing you've learnt about him? Um, I think that due to the nature of how David lost his sight through an accident as a young um, teenager, or maybe not even a teenager, and how as a result of that and the treatment that he undertook, um, he really didn't have any or a great deal of formal education. And as such, for him to have been able to achieve what he did without that in today's you know world, that is pretty amazing. And you wouldn't know it. Um, so he didn't have any school education post a little bit in you know, secondary school, I guess. Um, but it hasn't stopped him. You know, he ran his own business. He initiated um, organisations. He got on boards when it wasn't really the flavour of the time for people with disabilities to get on board. He didn't take no for an answer. He persisted and, you know, he can pretty well hold his place arguing or debating with the most educated people of the world and um, it's pretty impressive. Now, Marianne, it's not as much fun to just talk about the good things about David. So this is the bit when I want you to say something about David that he does not want you to say. It could be something he said or did or something he didn't say or do. I'm happy with a bit of scandalous gossip about David, which may have no basis in reality. Ah, oh, that's an interesting question. Um, as I said, David's been, you know, a great friend of mine and a mentor and I would say that over the years David has given me a huge amount of advice, you know, what I should do, what I should not do and I would say I think twice I listened to him and took it. Um, I didn't, I mean, I hear it, I decide what to do with it but there's a couple of things that I actually seriously took his advice on and I'll just share with what they are because I now use them when I talk to others. One is smart people employ smarter people. And secondly, pick the issues you're going to battle with. You won't win everything, but pick what, what to fight for and fight for them. They, I mean, it sounds really simple and it sounds really obvious, but lots of people can't, you know, set, do that. And I think that that's kind of lessons David learned for me. But, you know, I should tell David, as a friend, David, I didn't take all your advice. Thank you, Marianne, for your invaluable insights. Yeah, and thanks, John, for the opportunity to be part of this really special and important podcast. We left off last episode, um, David, where you were telling us about uh, the accident which caused your blindness and also put, us, put you into hospital. Now, you also uh, mentioned your anxiety at the time that... Um, your, your younger sister might have been injured um, and the relief at discovering that, um, in fact, she was fine. She had um, moved away from the area before the explosion. But I thought that that's an ideal spot to pick up the story um, of your experience in hospital. 
um, and um, something about the nature of your injuries. Yes, well, um, when I sort of came to and had some knowledge of what was going on around me, um, I found that uh, my face was totally bandaged up and both my hands were in plaster as both sets of fingers had been smashed in the explosion. I was very fortunate that um, there were three doctors in Darwin who could help me at the time and purely by accident. Um, one doctor was up there doing some time with the Flying Doctor Service. He was from Queensland and he was doing a four weeks uh, training program. He was able to do the general work. There was a surgeon who was a Scotsman who'd come to Australia as a migrant and because of our laws about uh, medical training he had to serve a time as a general practitioner virtually in a public hospital before he could get his qualifications recognised in Australia. He put my hands back together again and uh, a Catholic priest who was a one time a, an eye surgeon and uh, he virtually did the work on my eyes and um, he said at the time that he didn't you know that he could do much for me but the thing was that was what he told my family and uh, but he uh, did the best he could uh, which actual fact saved both the eyes to start with uh, which I eventually lost one later so I had those three people who sorry were, David do you mean saved the eyeball itself yes. rather than the eyesight yes the eyeballs yeah yeah mm. and uh, so I had those three people working for me um and that's probably what um, got me to a stage where I am today. When I first realised that uh, I was um, going to be blind, uh, I don't think I did realise it for quite a long time actually, but I was in the hospital in Darwin for four weeks before they could fly me south. Um, I had a couple of relapses while I was there and I have to say that uh, in retrospect when one looks back one realises the strength of one's family. Um, my mother was um, absolutely amazing. Uh, the way that she handled the whole issue of my blindness, uh, the accident itself, she was at home basically on her own at the time when it happened. My father was at work. Um, so he uh, he was very good too, but I, I think the strength of the family was with my mother. My brother and two sisters, one, of course one was very young, but the other one was old enough to know what was going on. They were sort of dumbfounded. They didn't know what was happening. Uh, you know, people in those days just didn't have the communications that we have today, and so uh, they were there. Uh, some of my friends came to visit me in the hospital towards the end of the time I was in the Darwin Hospital, and uh, uh, they were quite supportive and stayed supportive through the rest of my life. Then after four weeks they flew me to Adelaide to go to the Royal Adelaide Hospital for more intensive treatment. The ophthalmologist that I had in, in Adelaide was um, a Dr Snyder. Uh, he was a, an eminent uh, ophthalmologist in Adelaide. Um, he eventually extracted one of my eyes because it was just so full of ash from the metal which was so hot when it went in it just um, seared the flesh and that and uh, so that eye was eventually removed. He worked to try and save the other one and he did save it as an eyeball but um, he was unable to get me any sight. It was too full of blood and, um, and of course that had all congealed onto the retina and it pulled the retina off. So in actual fact uh, I've got an eyeball with no retina in it and um, that's, that's why I'm blind today. Mr Hobbs, who was the orthopaedic specialist that they sent me to, or came to see me, he made the statement in my hearing actually that uh, if he'd have been the surgeon when I was first in the accident he would have removed three of my fingers on my right hand. He can't believe that someone could have put those fingers back together looking at the x-rays that he had uh, before and after and what I had in my hand. But both my hands were like a claw at the time. I couldn't hold anything. Only the movement was only in my thumbs. And um, so I had to have physiotherapy on those. And uh, that was the most painful thing I've ever put up with, I think. Uh, 
they used to put electrode on the back of my hand and another one on the back of my arm and put an electricity jolt through it which would straighten my hand oh, out. My goodness. <laughs> the pain was incredible. But that I had, was to force your fingers to move? Yes, to force them out because they'd, they'd set like a claw mm. and of course they had to get them those two, the sinews to move and the bones to move and all that. And the, wow. And uh, it was very painful, but uh, it worked. And um, part of my uh, rehab was well, I was in that hospital for nine months. Um, nine well, months in Adelaide? Yes. Yeah. And uh, I used to uh, make um, cotton wool balls for the nurses. I must have done millions of those. Hang on, you're making cotton wool balls? Well, you got big rolls of cotton wool and you broke it up into small balls and put so- it in. I presume the electric shocks on your hands did a good job then. If oh, you're brilliant. doing something yeah. like making little cotton wool balls. Well, that's what they had me doing to make me use the fingers to strengthen them up. Ah, I see. Okay. And that was all part of that. I used to sew soft toys for the Red Cross. That was another oh, therapy yeah. they used. Yeah. It just get the strength into my fingers and uh, get them, keep them moving. And uh, while well, they were doing the treatment on them all the time, and uh, so that was all happening all the time while I was there. Um, and your family, they can't have all been down in Adelaide. None of them were in Adelaide. None of them? No. Not even your mum was able to no, come down? No, well, she still had a young two-year-old and uh, two other children to look after. Um, there was nothing she could do for me in Adelaide. They came and visited me over the Christmas period. The family came down. Yeah. I did have an aunt and uncle in Adelaide who used to come and visit me. Um, okay. And um, Still, it would have been... Extremely isolating. You're away from your family. You're away from your friends. It was. It was uh, very isolating, actually. And um, <laughs> the first morning I was there, at, um, I don't know if you know where the Adelaide Hospital is, but it's no, right, I have no idea. Huh. It's right next to the zoo. And uh, the first morning there, just on daybreak, this unearthly roar. <laughs> came up. I nearly flew out of the bed. I'd never <laughs> had anything like that in my life. And there was the lions roaring. And the only lion I'd ever seen was the Metro Golden Mare lion in the movies. You know? Yes, <laughs> so, that's right. Wow. <laughs> so that was a bit of a shock. Uh, but no, I I'd, uh, spent a lot of time there. Um, mm. One of the unfortunate things was while I was there, um, Mr. Bergman, who was the principal of the school in Darwin that I went to, was from South Australia, and uh, he wrote to the blind school in um, in Adelaide to see if they could give me some education. And uh, it was denied because I didn't come from South Australia and uh, they wouldn't even teach me Braille or anything. And uh, so I got no services at all from the blindness agency in South Australia while I was there. So, sorry, David, you're saying that the the state that you were previously, where you previously resided in, determined whether you could or couldn't get state services from South Australia? Yes, and that's the, only the first of several times that happened to me. And in hindsight, it is probably part of the foundation that made me the person I am today. Because of that, I uh, did not in, follow up with my education, so I finished at the eighth year of school. And uh, other than some courses I've done in colleges since, that's the only education I ever had, formal education. How would you say that you were coping um, with your circumstances? I mean, you're just a young boy, um, removed from your family, removed from friends, having to learn new skills and having to regain the use of of your hands. Um, Looking back at that, do you you think you sort of had the the relaxed attitude of the child that just uh, gets on with it, or it was you were um, more sort of frightened and uh, I suppose um, uh, threatened by what the what your new future might offer? In hindsight, um, I think I coped very well actually. Um, probably youth was the, the saving grace. I um, never believed I was ever, that I was going to be blind. Um, I thought this was purely a temporary situation. Once my hands, I got the movement in my hands, uh, I was able to uh, use a knife and fork and uh, manage the food. And really, that was the only thing I had to do because there was no mobility. Uh, 
walking around the ward was nothing and that's all there was I couldn't go outside the ward although I did from time to time but it was only in that area so it was, wasn't as though I was doing anything major so walking around the ward you virtually walk from bed to bed to bed just along and uh, went out to the toilets and those things so there wasn't a lot that I had to learn to do sure, sure. At, uh, that all changed of course when I left the hospital out of that environment uh, okay so at, at the end of your stay in the Adelaide hospital this is when you moved back to Darwin I stayed in Adelaide for about three weeks after that with my aunt and uh, then I went back to Darwin alrighty so then you that's back to your ham- family home yes yeah so can you tell us a bit about that well when I came back to Darwin um, you must remember that in those days it wasn't like it is today Um, we sent a telegram to my parents that I was coming on this plane and uh, but they lived nine miles out of Darwin they didn't have a telephone and we didn't really have electricity and uh, the telegram was sitting in their post box in the ta- in the sit- in Darwin when I arrived by aeroplane, and um, so they didn't know you were coming. No, oh. so I, in those days the airlines used to have buses that took you from the aeroplane into the city, and so uh, I went on the bus to there, and the hostess said, "Well, there's no one here to meet you." So I knew a friend of ours, Mr. And Mrs. Siri, who lived near where the depot was. So the the airline people took me there. And uh, I'll never forget Mr. Siri was very ill. He had uh, eventually turned out he had pneumonia. But uh, they were so excited to see me <laughs> that I'd come home. And uh, so they drove me out to my home uh, to where my mother and father were. And uh, and my, my mother was so excited that she just actually lit a cigarette and she kissed me with a cigarette in her mouth. <laughs> <laughs> so besides being blind, I had a burn on already, the cheek. <laughs> I was going to say, you've already had some pretty severe bl- um, burning experiences. But um, no, it was a, a great reunion by the family and they were excited and so was I. And uh, But I was um, very fat, I must say, because having been in hospital for so long and not doing anything... And we had a dog called Socks. It was a, a mongrel dog. When I say a mongrel, it was a mongrel breed. It was a lovely little dog. And uh, that dog realised I was blind right from the start. And we had three steps into our house. And every time I went near those steps, that dog brushed my leg to let me know those steps were there. Is that right? And she'd had no training or anything. She'd picked that up right from the start. And uh, so that was the beginning of a year and a half I spent in Darwin. We, um, I learnt a lot of things then. Uh, well, I didn't learn them, I just did them. I mean, we, I rode a bike, I did all sorts of things that we used to do and go and see my friends. And oh, You've got to explain that to me, David. You've lost your eyesight, your hands are working again. How on earth do you ride a bike? Well, up there, because the, we live nine miles out of town, there's a bitumen road, so I used to ride the bike by just going on and off the road. And uh, I knew I was on the dirt, I knew I was on the bitumen, I just rode along that. That stopped when I ran into the back of a semi-trailer which was parked on the side of the road and uh, my mother banned me from doing that anymore. Yeah, I can imagine that would would bring a big stop to the whole process. But, you know, we lived in a situation where you had to do things or you did nothing. I mean, there was no choices. You, Well, there was a choice. You either did, you got on with your life or you sat down in the corner and uh, I didn't want to sit in the corner and my mother and father wouldn't let me sit in the corner anyway. Uh, I had to go and chop wood and do all the things that you have to do in a normal home and uh, we had to do those things and uh, I used to do the ironing because I'd done that before I'd lost my sight. I used to iron my own clothes and my father's clothes because we used to wear long whites in those days whenever we went out and they were starched and, you know, terrible things we used to wear, unfortunately. And so I used to press all that. So I had all those skills already and uh, it was only a matter of just reusing them I think from what I'm hearing, David, is that your parents, um, perhaps particularly your mother, didn't attribute blindness with helplessness. Oh, she didn't oh. feel that um, you had to be mm. um, protected or um, mm. Mm. or just sort of sat down in the lounge room and made tea for. She obviously expected you to still remain uh, active and to play a role in the family. Very much so, and uh, as I've said before, she was the strength of the whole operation. My father 
a little bit more the other way. He was, he was, he he was quite concerned for my future. He really couldn't see what I was going to do. And um, there's a little story I can tell later on, which will highlight that. But uh, no, but he was still very good too. I mean, we had trucks, so I mean, I still had to do my bit around helping him with the trucks. So I could lay underneath the truck and hold the gearbox up while he was fitting it onto the thing, same as anyone else could. So I had to do those things, um, and we could uh, I could help him with changing wheels and things like that. So we had to. As I said, you d- things had to be done around the place, so you did them, and that's all there was to it. Mm. Do you think, as his eldest son, where he had expectations of you going on to being a mechanic and following on in his footsteps, that it was hard for him to understand that you were going to have a different future? It was very hard for my father, because he was a bushman, uh, and uh, he really... Well, he actually said in the early stages, after I was blinded, that... If I was a horse, they'd have put me down. Um, mm. yeah, and he didn't mean that in any other way other than the fact that he couldn't see how I was going to manage as a blind person. And uh, he, uh, But to, he, uh, to his, his credit, he, he stuck with it. And uh, and then he later, later in his life, he ended up in a wheelchair himself. And we actually did become very close, even though I was living 2,000 miles away. Uh, we had a much more of an empathy with one another. And... Uh, They'd always had a good effort with my father, I suppose, but uh, he did worry about me a lot, and uh, and he was, I think he was very upset about the fact that I wasn't going to carry on the business. Uh, I'm sure that's what he had in his mind, and I had it in mine anyway, and that's what we were going to do. Uh, do you think there was a guilt factor there as well? He Did he feel that he should have been your protector? He should have um, protected you from... Um, um, from cutting those mines open, from letting the accident happen? Well, I'm sure he would have hit a known. Um, but uh, my sister told me that um, the night that I was blinded, he broke down um, because um, he I wanted to go with him that day. It was a Saturday morning and he didn't let me go and he sort of held himself responsible and my mother had to work very hard to control him. He was so upset and... Mm-hmm. She said, I've never seen a grown man cry before and uh, like he did. And so that was my father, he was a, a very emotional man, but a very strong man as well. And um, he was a great father, really. And uh, we, uh, I, you know, I suppose I did disappoint him in that regard, but I know he was very proud of me later on. So uh, I think I made a lot of that up for him. Sure, sure. You weren't in Darwin for long, were you? Only about a year and a bit, yes. Um, well, they decided I had to go to work. I had to find something to do. And um, uh, one of the jobs I wanted to apply for, but they wouldn't let me apply for, it was a grave digger job. That was the only job I could think I could do. Uh, and I had a friend who was a grave digger, and his partner had left Darwin, so they were looking for someone to help him. And uh, I wanted to go and do it, but uh, my mother wasn't too keen on that idea. So <laughs> that didn't happen, thank goodness. <laughs> Did she think... Was low status or um, somehow? Sort she, of... she just didn't think it was for me. No, no, fair <laughs> enough. She then. was right. Okay, but uh, I was desperate to stay in Darwin because all my friends were in Darwin, and and they remained my friends. You know, because in those days where we lived, our nearest neighbours were a mile and a bit away, and they were our friends that we went to school with, and we played footy together, and we knocked around on weekends together. So I continued to do that because. They needed me as much as I needed them. One of the things you learn when you live in isolation like that is that dependence is just as important as independence. We're dependent on other people for all our social contact. We're depending on other people for our sporting activities and uh, general living. So dependence and independence are inter- interchangeable as far as I'm concerned. And uh, and uh, that I was as important to them as they were to me. Mm. So what was available in um, in Brisbane in terms of work that um, you couldn't do in Darwin? Well, there was a sheltered workshop there uh, for blind people. It was called the Queensland Industrial Workshops for the Blind. It was run by the Queensland Government. So we applied to go there because I didn't want to go back to South Australia because they didn't want me. But also it was cold down there and... Uh, Coming from Darwin, I felt the cold. Um, so we went to Brisbane and we got told in Brisbane that uh, oh, they couldn't help me because I didn't come from Queensland. I was uh, come from the Northern Territory. 
Oh, no. But fortunately, we were able to argue that uh, I'd spent the first um, 11 years of my life out of the 17 or the 16 that I had at that stage in Queensland, and so therefore they relented and uh, I got a job. And I was there for five years. I worked in the Queensland Industrial Workshops for the Blind. And uh, I lived, when I first went there, I lived with a cousin of mine for a short period of time. But that didn't work out because it was very difficult transport-wise to get to and from work. I had to catch a tram and a train. And, of course, I'd had no training at all in mobility. There was none available in those days. So, hang on, tell us a bit about that, David. The the services that were available to you at what we'd now call orientation and... um, the abilities to, um, you know, to to look after yourself in a home environment and um, um, learn those adaptive skills. Um, what was there um, mm. available to um, mm. assist you with those things? Nothing. You had to learn all those things yourself. Um, your family taught you to look after your, yourself, I suppose. I mean, I'd learned that as a sighted boy, so uh, I didn't have those problems. But um, there was no such thing as long cane training or... There were no guide dogs in those days either. All I had was a, a white stick, which was more or less like a walking stick, and uh, you just used that and you tapped your way along the fence line or whatever, and got quite around Brisbane where I lived at that time, there weren't many fence lines. It was just mm. a pretty open area, and uh, it was difficult to get to the train station, and then I had to get a tram. So I left there and went and stayed at the hostel, which was run by a blind society up there, and... Uh, that was a mixed gender hostel and there I learned a lot of skills there because other blind people taught them to me um, I had to learn how to get to and from work on my own well we only had one tram line to go down so that was okay I walked down the street to had across the road and walk up another block and a half and catch a tram and at the other end you had to walk a block and a half and that to get to the workshop so I learnt that by walking with other blind people to start with and then I eventually started doing it on my own. So you learnt those skills from them. Um, that was when I learnt Braille. The Queensland Braille Writers Association taught me Braille. They taught me to type. So they were two skills that I did acquire there besides working at the workshops. So the, the few services that were available, you had the sheltered workshop. Um, who ran that? The Queensland Government. Okay, so that was a government service. Yeah. Then you had the hostel, and then also you had a service teaching Braille and typing. Uh, They wrote Braille books by hand. Did they? Yeah, the Queensland Braille Writers Association, and they were the ones who taught me Braille, and they also taught me to type. And was that a a charitable service, or was that um, state government as well? No, that was charitable. Was it? Everything else was charitable except the workshops. They were government. It surprises me, given that um, blindness was a common uh, disability coming out of um, coming out of wars, and you know, e- even at this point, the war's not that far uh, in the back. You know, it's not that far past. I thought that there would be a a significant group of um, men, in particular, um, who'd be needing those blindness services. Well, there was a big distinction between the war-blinded and the non-war-blinded. Um, the war-blinded were mostly all sent to England to St Dunstan's, where they either learnt to be a physiotherapist or maybe a switchboard operator or that, and then they came back to Australia and they were... That's because that was seen as jobs that blind people could do? Probably, and that's yeah. where they were training at in England. Yeah. Um, not a lot of them had jobs when they came back to Australia, but uh, they got a better pension than we did, and uh, they were looked after more by the Red Cross. Um, there were there was a very distinct separation between the two groups, um, and I I don't know that it ever changed. Actually, I think it's just now that there's less of them that um, they When I came to Melbourne, I did see a few war-blinded people working at the workshops here. But not many. I think it was only about three that I can recall. So in the hostel that you were in, that that didn't have veterans? No, no, no. no. There were a couple of guys there who were ex-servicemen, but they weren't blinded as servicemen. Radio, yeah. okay. And uh, so we, uh, they were there. So, yeah, but in that hostel, that's where I learnt a number of my skills for travel, particularly. And uh, I joined the Blind Workers' Union when I was there, so that started me on my 
career in advocacy. Yes, yeah, so tell us a little bit about this Blind Workers Union. The um, Obviously, you know, that's... Um, that's early days in terms of um, of blindness services. Uh, it's interesting that that group of workers had uh, organised, and um, what what sort of linkages did they have into the mainstream union movement? Well, the, the Blind Workers Union in Queensland, and there was one in Victoria and South Australia as well, as well as, I don't think there was one in New South Wales, there was an association in New South Wales, but they were established back in 1913. Uh, so they, That far back? Oh yes, they, wow. they were the ones that advocated originally to have blindness recognised as a, we used to call it an invalid pension in those days. Um, so they did exist a long way back, they had a long history. Uh, when I joined them, um, we were only a small group. I mean, I think there were probably only would have been about sixty or seventy workers at that workshops. Um, at uh, our union meetings, would probably have about ten or twelve people would attend them, maybe a couple more sometimes, if there was something controversial going on. But um, and while I was there, I was on the committee, and then I, I also represented the union with the trades hall council in Queensland. Um, I used to go to the trades hall council meetings. They were quite interesting, very interesting actually. Uh, it was very interesting because we had Labor governments and we'd had Labor governments since 1933 and this was back this in the mid to late 50s and uh, the um, the old council was arguing with the government most of the time and it was a Labor government but it was a communist council so they, uh, there was a few battles going on there. And, uh, and I think you were telling me that was that was a conser- quite a conservative Labor government and actually um, uh, anti-communist in its own oh. in its own position. Oh, very much so. And that government was the Gear government, and it eventually became the DLP when the big split came in the late fifties. Or every member of the cabinet bar one went across to the DLP. Yeah, and that was the Gear government, and uh, okay. he became so, more infamous later on in the Senate. But uh, uh, so the the. The Blind Workers Union was affiliated as a union with the um, Trades and Labor Council in yep. Queensland. Yes. Um, and had had voting rights and speaking rights. So, attending those meetings, you had um, you had rights, full rights as a union delegate. Oh yes, I never spoke at them, um, but I did speak to the delegates quite a lot afterwards because, uh, in those days, as I mentioned once before, very few people had cars. So everyone travelled by tram or train, or whatever, and uh, and after the meeting we'd all go home on the same trams and buses, and or down to the pub and have a few beers and uh, do those things. So you got to know the people, and uh, I knew what the issues were. A lot of our members were members of the branches of the Labor Party at that time, uh, and they used to try and raise the issues what was going on in the workshops. But um, that was always argued that that was an industrial matter and you couldn't talk about it at the political party. So. That was my first indication of where power lies. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> and uh, and you know that if you haven't got access to it, you have nothing. And um, so I learnt that lesson. Um, so I spent that time there. With these people, they were very knowledgeable men. Um, uh, Mr. Dawson, who was the head of the Trade Hall Council, was a lawyer, uh, a labour lawyer, um, an industrial lawyer. And uh, I can't think of the name of the secretary, but they were both very staunch communists, but they were great guys and they were very good to me and and they nothing was a problem if I asked them questions and they did try to help the workers at the blind workers factory but uh, the government at that time we just wouldn't move on anything and uh, we got nowhere but uh, we, we got reasonable wages, we got better wages there than they got in, in Sydney or Adelaide and those places but uh, they weren't that good hmm. No the um there was there was the blind workers union around that workshop mm. the presumably there were other workshops for other people who had different disabilities so were there were there sheltered workshops for people with um who were using you know mobility disabled whether because of um um you know the various uh conditions no there was nothing the only workshops were for blind people um blindness is has always been seen as the disability. Well, it always used to be seen as the disability. Um, uh, 
and I don't know why, but uh, it's always had special treatment. We were the ones who got a means test free pension because I, I was with the Blind Workers Union when uh, the advocacy came for that from the, our, interna- our national body at that stage. Um, that was the Australian Federation of Organisations of the Blind and uh, they advocated for that in 1952 I think we got the first break we got a part part um, means test free and in 1955 it was totally means test free and that was by the Menzies government they they did that and uh, blind people have had that means test free pension ever since nobody else has ever had that other than war veterans they had it but um so uh, blindness was always seen as a different disability to all the others until, I'd say, the last well, 30 years. Um, mm. Do you think mm. the history of that is one of the reasons why, and I, I would argue that uh, as a group of people with disabilities, people who are blind have been more politically active, more organised and more effective in advocacy uh, with government in Australia, but at all sorts of levels. Um, do you think it goes back to this history of having that um, that association through the workshops, through unions, connections with the um, with the union movement and um, political parties, and and the schools. The schools. We started off with a school system where we got education. See, I don't know, but we always believed that the deaf had uh, the deaf missions as they used to call them uh, they had uh, special facilities as well but they didn't seem to put a lot of emphasis on education well they might have but they couldn't get the training we had braille and then you know and uh, we had a means of having a written communication and because of braille and braille was taught to students so therefore if they could get the material transcribed into braille and there were organisations like the Queensland Braille Writers Association in every state so they were doing that Uh, a lot of braille was produced in prisons it was used as part of the um, workshops in prisons to make do braille books and braille material so there was always an access of, of a kind to information in braille for education purposes and uh, a number of uh, blind people went on to university, um, mostly in music, but then they started to get into law. Um, there was a couple of lawyers in New South Wales started off, and then in Victoria, and then in Queensland, and now there's law is quite a common subject for blind students. Uh, and access to the universities probably became more accessible after the 60s from then on more people started to go to university. Up till then, um, you were educated uh, up to usually uh, probably year eight or nine. Okay. And then you went back to work. You went to work. David, perhaps you could uh, tell us a little bit about the um, the jobs that were being done in the workshop and um, what, what that sort of um, working environment was like. I did uh, mat making, uh, making doormats. We had another department that made mattresses, um, horse, fi- horse fi- not horse fibre, uh, coir ma- uh, fibre mattresses. We had a department that made straw brooms and another one that did brushes um, and another one that did basketware. They were the main departments that worked at Queensland Industrial Workshops for the Blind. The... Um, the Sorry, I just I'm I'm wondering, David. You've got a sharp mind. You like to you like to learn. You mm. like to be um, uh, doing things that are challenging. Was that stifling? Was it boring? Yes, it was. Although I was very lucky, there were five of us around about the same age, and uh, that did help a lot. Uh, you know, we knocked around together. We did things. So, but the work itself was quite. And it was very hot. I mean, Brisbane's a very hot climate, and if you were working a rod loom, uh, uh, I was trim, I can assure you. I would have been lucky if I had weighed more than about 10 stone. And uh, uh, But I was lean, and we were strong. So uh, the workshops were there. The union uh, took up a bit of our time, and uh, other than that, we didn't have any activities to do with the workshops other than just go to work there. Mm. Now, you mentioned friendships. I'm wondering about that. Those years, they're very formative years for a young person. Um, They're years when 
Um, people develop their values, they develop their politics, um, and also they, um, uh, they develop their sexuality as well during that time. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that. Yes, well, as I said, there were five of us about the same age, and there were two, two girls about the same age, so um, we all knocked around a fair bit together. Um, that was my, probably my first girlfriend was one of those. and uh, Probably your first girlfriend. <laughs> Come on, David, well, we need the story. The first girlfriend story is very well, important. Well, she was my first real girlfriend, I suppose. There were a few crushes I had before that were, were one-sided, but uh, that was a two-sided relationship where I had for a couple of years, and... Uh, Eventually faded when I came south. Um, the, uh, I learned to play cricket uh, while I was there, and of course we used to have dances at the Queensland Musical Literary and Self Aid Society for the Blind (QML) every two weeks. We had a dance there, so we used to go and dance. So that's where we had our social activity. Sighted girls and and guys used to come in and dance with the blind people, and we danced with one another. And it, it was generally uh, quite a good. A program, very good actually. It wasn't a program; it was just something that was done every two weeks, and uh, and that's how we did it. The blind members provided the orchestra because music has always been a very big thing amongst blind people, and uh, we did everything there. Um, the cricket, I joined the blind cricketers club in Queensland and learnt to play the game, and also myself, I became pretty good at it. Um, and uh, can you tell us? How do blind people play cricket? Well, very different to the way they play it now. But when we played, we had a cane ball with bottle tops and a bit of lead inside it to get the weight on it, and we had to keep it wet because it got very dry. And you would the bottle it. tops make noise? When yeah, you... it would rattle. Yeah. Okay. We bowled underarm, and we only had one batsman in at a time, and you had to bounce the ball once at least on each side of the halfway line it's because you had to make sound. Um, I was a better bowler than a batsman. I wasn't a very good batsman at all, actually, but I was a very good bowler. I was strong because of the work I was doing on these mat-making and built your muscles up. And uh, so I could bowl reasonably quick. So I played with uh, that club. I represented Queensland twice. We went to Sydney once, and two years later we had a carnival in Brisbane. In And there... Uh, I got to know the Victorians pretty well and a guy called Ivan Malloy virtually suggested I might like to come to Victoria and play with his club and I said yes I would. At that stage I was pretty sick of Brisbane. Uh, One of the things that we found in Brisbane that blind people couldn't get jobs away from the workshops because it was seen that that was where blind people worked and even the unions, some of the unions opposed us going into some of the industries on the grounds that there was a workshop there for blind people and you know that that was a pretty well a common way of thinking in those days so is that is that a way of thinking that people are saying that you're taking away jobs from yep. somebody else who really needs that job whilst you're otherwise catered for yes and um, they also one realized that in those days there wasn't any unemployment so it was it's pretty hard to understand but they were just entrenched ideas that people had and uh, Fortunately, they've all changed since that, but that's how people used to think in those days. You were blind, there's a workshop over there for you, and that's where you go. And uh, it's interesting that the things we made were what they do in prison, so it was pretty good similarity. <laughs> I think you mentioned to me that the um, the prison was across the railway track from the workshop. Straight across the road, railway tracks, Bogger Road jail was, and uh, we often had to go over there because the fibre teasing machines that we had, and they had one too because they made these fibre mattresses as well, um, Every now and again, there'd be a bit of stone or something in the bales of fibre as they came in, and as the teaser hit it, that caused a spark, and that was cut a fire. So it wasn't uncommon that you'd have a fire in your fibre teasing room, and so and that would mean that we'd have to go to the jail and take uh, stuff over there and use their fibre teasing machine, or vice versa. They often had to come over and use ours. So uh, they were there, so we got to know some of the prisoners too, and. Uh, so I can say that I've been in two jails. I've been in Bogger Road, <laughs> and uh, when I was when a salesman down here, I used to go out to Pantridge. So I've been to two oh, jails. All righty, so <laughs> but never as a free boarder. That's a type of institutional experience that um, well worth avoiding. <laughs> the um, you you mentioned a bit about your friends. You mentioned um, uh, your connections with people at the hostel. 
Now that's also a time when a young man is um, is beginning to cut loose a little bit, and a bit, a bit beginning to um, uh, experiment with alcohol. Um, was that was that something that was seen as okay for blind people to go out and have a drink? Oh yes, certainly. Uh, we were encouraged by the bars anyway. Um, yeah, we used to go out and uh, drink a bit. I wasn't a heavy drinker in those days. Um, <clears throat> Uh, I never was actually, but I, I, I was a drinker. A couple of my mates were much heavier drinkers than I was. But um, we used to, we had one experience where um, we used to have a raffle every year for the cricket club. And we used to go around these hotels selling them on a Saturday afternoon. And these two guys, with three of us, were all 20 years of age. And um, the other two were quite substantial drinkers. I was just a really a social drinker. And we went to this hotel this day and this bar I said to this guy, how old are you? And he, and he said, like, he looked at because we had to have ID, you see, and he said, I'm 20. And how old are you? He said, the other one, I'm 20. How old are you? I said, I'm 22. Well, I said, you can have a beer and they've got to have lemonade. And they were the two drinkers and I wasn't. I meant I was also 20. So she oh, 20 was, as well. <laughs> yeah. But ah. she thought I was 22. So I got a drink and they didn't. And 21 was the... Was the cutoff? Oh it? yes, yes, it was. Ah. Eighteen only came in when oh, I don't know, probably when they um, they had conscription for the uh, Vietnam. Right. When uh, right. people got the vote at the age of eighteen, um, so uh, you know, twenty one, and because Queensland had much better laws than the others for drinks. I mean, you could at ten o'clock closing in those days up there. You didn't have that in New South Wales or Victoria or South Australia. They were all six o'clock, but. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, so we did that. We're drinking. I joined the Buffalo Lodge. Okay, what's a Buffalo Lodge? Oh, it's a lodge for men in those days where you went and you ate and you drank and you sang songs and had a good time. It was was an after hours drinking, I think, actually. (laughs) Sure. But a lot of people got a lot more out of it. There was a bit of ceremony and those sort of things. And uh, I joined that. One of the guys who was a blind chap who was an ex Navy guy, actually, he was the one who introduced me into it. And. uh, a uh, little bit like um, Masons or something like that? Yeah, but a little bit more loose than the Masons, yeah. Radio. Yeah, I joined both of them, actually. and uh, The Masons as well? Yeah, in Victoria I did, yeah. Ah, uh, a bit mm, later on. Yeah. Okay. But up there I was in the Buffalo Lodge, and um, and uh, I met people there, too. That was good, you know. What we used to do there was um, you would pay, it was all pennies. Uh, you'd pay so much to hear somebody sing or do that and so you will learn I used to do a bit of poetry when I got called on someone else would do something else so I used to do a bit of Australian poetry and uh, and it was a bit of fun you know once a week we used to go out there and I'd get the tram home some nights I'd be walking a bit unsteadily other than most times I was okay so but as I said we still didn't have long cane training or anything like that we were still using an ordinary stick and just tapping the fence as you went along I had a couple of humorous experiences there. Um, once I was going home, and um, during the day it was, and next thing I was flat on my face. I'd stepped into a hole, which was about 60 centimetres deep. Oh, my goodness. And uh, I got up and shook myself down, climbed out of it, and took about three paces, and bang, I was down another one. I thought I, thought I must have turned around. I thought, no. Absolutely. I hadn't turned around, so I got up and... Took a couple more paces and bang, I was down another one. And this voice says, you're okay now, mate, there aren't any more. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever work out what was going on? Were they planting trees? Or no, it was, uh, they were uh, putting uh, gas and water lines into a property. Oh, and they had these three uh, trenches <laughs> dug across the footpath. It might have been nice for the guy to have mentioned something before you went in all three. Oh, well, that's how things were in those days. <clears throat> Uh, there's many great blindness stories people can tell like that, and uh, but that was mine. And uh, we, uh, so there's a lot of things I learnt. Um, you know, to get around, you learnt. Um, but you had to learn these things yourself, or from other blind people. They were the teachers. The other blind people taught you. They taught you by example. They did it themselves. So you did it. You followed on. You think, well, if he can do that, so can I. We used to play cards regularly. We were great poker players, you know, for very low stakes because we had very little money. Now, again, I have <laughs> to ask. You can't actually see the cards you've got. Braille so, cards. So there's Braille on the cards. Yeah, Braille cards. Yeah, yeah. 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 We played with Braille cards and... Uh, 
we'd all have a few beers while we were playing and go to someone's house and and that was all fun so that's what I said we had, <coughs> there was five or seven of us with the two girls and they came to some of the things with us but not all of them we didn't take them when we went to the pub or anything like that and uh, that, uh, there was segregation in those days the girls could only go into the saloon bar and we weren't going there because of a deer in there <laughs> you had to pay more for a drink in the women's bar oh, no, what they call the saloon bar which yeah. was where the, t- <coughs> the women could go into what was called the saloon bar which was the upper deck uh, upper bar was uh, it racially segregated as well not so much in Brisbane um, it was in other places uh, Brisbane the, the Aborigines used to go into the hotels and they're there um, we had um, one of the, one of our five guys was an Aboriginal, and one of the girls was or two. Well, actually, there were three girls because there were two of the girls were Aboriginal. One was a full blood Aboriginal, the other was a part Aboriginal. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were three of us in the eight that were Aboriginal. It made no difference to any of us. I mean, uh, as far as we were concerned, they were just people, and uh, um, they were fun to be with, and or they were not fun to be with. You were friends with them one day, and not the next. You know. <laughs> Young people sure. go round around. Uh, yes, of course. David, I'd like to ask you about the embarrassment of being a, a teen, look, a early 20s, late teens. The, um, uh, they're difficult years for anybody, um, but when you've got the issues around blindness, that it could raise particular awkwardnesses or embarrassments for a young man. And I'm just wondering, was that a factor for you? No, I don't recall any really embarrassing um, situations caused by my blindness. Uh, as I mentioned, we had these um, social activities, so the dance every fortnight. So you met people there and uh, there was no embarrassment. They came there to dance with blind people or to dance with one another and we danced with other blind people. So the, the social contact with boys and girls was not a problem there. Um, meeting them was a bit of a difficulty other than that but um, uh, other than that no I didn't have a lot of problems with their blindness so I've I don't feel that I've been discriminated against as a person but my uh, only the fact that the states wouldn't recognize me at first but which is absolutely ridiculous it's hard to imagine well you can take your mind back further they said that uh, you had to get permission to leave the state at one stage and but I think that was back in the 1800s. Uh, it was difficult and it was ridiculous, but that's the way that people thought at the time. And you know, I, I don't think people understand today how different each of the states were at that time and how they saw themselves in the whole pro, uh, fabric of Australia. They were more state-orientated than they were nationally orientated. And you still see that to a certain extent in state politics, but not to the same extent. So you mean that that sense of identification with being a Queenslander um, above or just separate to being an Australian? I think in the early day, in my early days, it was more that you were a Queenslander rather than you were an Australian. Um, that's how those people that had never left their state felt like that. I'm quite sure. I know the Victorians did when I came down here. I, I really noticed that in Victoria, um, because uh, you know it just seemed that they saw themselves as different. You know? mm. Mm. Now we're coming up to another uh, major change in your life, and that is your move down to Melbourne. And we'll be dealing with that in the next episode. But it was interesting to me. You mentioned that. The conversation about moving down south started with some of the people you played cricket with. Um, how did that come about? Well, we had a cricket carnival. We used to have these every two years, and um, it was Brisbane's time to host it. So I got very friendly with the Victorians, um, and uh, I got to know them, and we got talking about things, and I said I was thinking about leaving Queensland. I was really thinking of going to Western Australia because I had this terrible fear of being cold. Deep south, it's so <laughs> cold down there, you know. It is cold. Well, we thought it was even colder than it is. <laughs> uh, being Queenslanders, uh, we really thought it was the South Pole. At that, they said, oh, well, look, why don't you come and play one season with us in, uh, in the summer and, make, and see what you think. So I thought, oh, yeah, I'll do that. So that was the decision. I made it there and then. And uh, so I, I came down and... Uh, well, actually, I'm going to I'm going to stop you there because mm. I don't want to mm. get into yeah, what we're yeah. going to talk about yeah. in the next episode. Yeah. I think the fact that you um, 
that you started off as a cricket tourist is absolutely fantastic. And um, and I'm looking forward to um, catching up with you about um, your move to Melbourne and all the adventures. Thank you.